Well, if you're in the fifth grade or younger, there is a special service downstairs for you, and you're welcome to go. Um, the rest of you, I would like to ask to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have one, there may be one in front of you or nearby under the chair, the reddish-covered uh, one. Colossians is in the New Testament about two-thirds of the way through. Colossians chapter 2. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. And our focus today is going to be on verses 4 through about the first half of verse 10. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, Nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude." See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, the sum of all things spiritual, Paul says to the Ephesians. And we ask for a clear revelation of your person, that we might see you in this passage, high and lifted up, glorious before us in all of your total sufficiency. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would give us ears to hear. I pray specifically for an anointing upon my lips and mouth as I speak the word this morning, that you would give that anointing of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would do a work that is not humanly possible, that you would give us spiritual understanding for the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. They are spiritually discerned. But one who is uh, in you and filled with your Spirit can understand and appropriately evaluate all things. And we ask, Lord, for that enabling by your Spirit this morning to understand and appropriate your Word. Anoint it, Father, and bring glory to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. As we come to this section 
in Paul's letter, this is the transition point. And, and most of Paul's writings are like this in many of the New Testament letters, but Paul in particular, he tends to give us a background that is more general in nature and, and doctrinal in its, uh, in its focus. And what Paul has done in Colossians in the first chapter is expressed how he's praying for them and then given us a very clear picture of who Jesus is. We, we see that in those last verses of chapter 1 as he lifts up Jesus Christ and makes some very, very clear statements about his person. And then Paul has a tendency, uh, based on the foundation of truth that he has laid, to turn his attention to the practice, to the behavior, uh, to the kind of daily living issues. And now in Colossians, he is making that, uh, that switch. He's turning the corner, and he's going to be talking about, in the next couple of chapters, the specific problems that the Colossians are dealing with, those things that are uh, potentially giving them trouble. And so uh, this is an important, uh, important section. Verses 4 and 5 actually conclude the first part, and beginning with verse 6 is when we move into the second part of this letter in an official way. And one of the things that Paul says, and I want to take you back to verse 4 for just a moment. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Uh, I titled my first point, Plausible Arguments, Perilous Pitfalls. I don't often do things like that with words, but every once in a while they just kind of fall out. Like, you know, I have to grab them when they show up and... And use them because uh, that's something you can remember. And besides remembering it, if you need to practice speaking without spitting your peas, you can use those words and that will help you in your diction as well. But, but um, plausible arguments, perilous pitfalls. Paul says, I, I'm, I'm writing this letter because I don't want you to be uh, deluded, led off the path by plausible arguments. The word pervasive here um, kind of captures that, but the word itself means that which seems to be reasonable. It, it seems to fit. It, it seems to make sense. And in, oftentimes it's used in the positive sense. It's only here in the context that its negative tones are brought out because Paul says you can be deceived by these things. And what Paul is talking about is the kind of argument that the church at Colossae is liable to be suckered in by. You know, it's the kind of thing that sneaks up on you when you're not looking, and before you're aware of it, you're, you're kind of off on a tangent and you didn't see it coming. Paul wants to make that clear for them. And let me say to you that when the enemy comes to the church today, the Scripture says that his characteristic is to appear as an angel of light. He does not attempt to deceive us in things that are obviously wrong. You know, if, if we came to church this morning and there, were some, there was some guy out on the front steps sacrificing a chicken and sprinkling its blood around the, the banister rails, 
and, uh, you know, wanting us to uh, get on our knees and worship the stars and and the, the giver of chicken blood before we came into the church. None of you, none of you would be deceived by that. I mean, there's not a person in this room. Am I wrong? Please tell me that I'm not wrong. There's not a person in this room that would think for a heartbeat that there was anything spiritually valid about that. Now, there are places in the world where that would be a deception. And people might buy it. But not here. In Western United States, not Western United States, but in the West, in the United States, we're not going to be taken in by that kind of ritual. It's not going to deceive us. We're going to be taken in by the kinds of things that seem sound and reasonable and logical. They're going to, they're going to feel right. They're going to be good kinds of things in all of their appearance. And so Paul tells us in verse 4 and also in verse 8, he says, I don't want anyone to delude you with plausible arguments. And see to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. And philosophy is simply a love of wisdom. I mean, as a discipline... It's the practice of kind of looking into life philosophically and seeking to deduce truth in a logical fashion. But it's a love of wisdom. And who doesn't want to know how uh, to understand and perceive life correctly? Who doesn't want to know how to improve their life and make it better? And so philosophy kind of has as its foundation the idea of explaining the meaning of life and, and coming to, uh, to, to terms with those things that cause one to live well. And Paul says, I don't want you to be taken in by that. The kinds of things that the Colossians were facing were things that were liable to take them off the track. And the kinds of things in terms of application that we would be facing as a church today are the kinds of things that would take us off the track. Now, there are two issues, broadly speaking, that the Colossian church was dealing with in terms of teaching that was prevalent throughout Asia Minor but seemed to be particularly troublesome in these Lycus Valley churches, uh, those that were inland from Ephesus, uh, north of the Mediterranean, and uh, and uh, over to the um, east from Ephesus, about a hundred miles, uh, those churches in the Lycus Valley along the river, uh, including Hierapolis and Laodicea, they they were seemingly in a seedbed of this kind of thinking. One of those things was the influence of Eastern mysticism within the culture that kind of got absorbed into uh, Judaism or, or the Jewish life and the Greek philosophy. It kind of became an amalgam, a mixture of a lot of things that uh, had also as its influence Eastern Dualism, the, the, the idea that matter is evil, that spirit is good, 
that the, the world is kind of, uh, the universe is kind of uh, in balance and tension between good and evil, light and dark, the yin and the yang, that kind of thing. You've heard me talk about that before. What the church at Colossae was facing eventually came to be known as Gnosticism, and that was a term that we gave it a couple of hundred years ago as we looked back on that period of time. But it was really a series of emerging heresies that started about the same time that the gospel began to be spread, wouldn't you know? I mean, do you think that's an accident? And as it spread around, as the gospel was being preached, these philosophies began to rise up, and Jesus was kind of incorporated into that. And it didn't come to its full-blown, uh, uh, you know, uh, teaching as a heresy until the 2nd and 3rd century. But the roots of it were already there. Interestingly enough, we are still facing, today, the influence of the same kinds of Eastern philosophies. They are still infecting the church and being a source of temptation. And we who in the West pride ourselves on our empiricism, you know, it's almost like we're all from Missouri. Show me. i got to have proof. I want to see it in front of my face. I want the scientific documentation. We are nonetheless gullibly buying into a lot of the influence of Eastern mysticism. And as a consequence, in the whole realm of, of, of uh, disciplines, including medicine and health and holistic medicine, there's a lot of influence. And so the church is facing the same kinds of things. That's one arena of heresy that was beginning to press in upon the church. Another one, which is also likewise not a new kind of heresy uh, or, or for us or for them, was the idea of Jesus plus something else. That Jesus alone was not sufficient. That they needed to follow in addition to Jesus, rules and regulations and requirements and criteria in order to perfect themselves spiritually. Excuse me a minute. Had a dry throat for quite a while. So I'll have to wet it occasionally this morning. But the concept of Jesus plus is also not new. It went kind of like this. Well... You need Jesus to save you. He's the one that can forgive your sin. But if you really want to grow up and mature spiritually, then you need to also do this and this and this. You need to practice these rituals. You need to go through uh, the obedience of these rules and requirements. You need to add this to Jesus in order to perfect yourself. There's nothing new about that uh, now or then. All religion, all religion, this is the stumbling block of the cross for the Jew and for the Greek and everybody else. All religion is predicated upon the idea 
that I can somehow make it up to God if I just do the right things. If I can just learn the formula, if I can follow the ritual, if I can obey the rules, I can somehow gain some favor and influence with God. And so, what you have being introduced into the church is this Jesus plus mentality that results in legalism. And legalism never comes to a good end. It always leads to failure of one kind or another. And so, these are the kinds of things that the Colossian church was facing, and we're going to see them uh, fleshed out in some detail as we get more deeply into chapter 2. But this morning, I just wanted to take a, a couple of moments and hit the high spots of some of these. And then I'm going to come back in the coming weeks and deal with them uh, more specifically. What are the kinds of things that the church faces today that are analogous to these first century problems and that are pretty broadly accepted by the academic communities, by the medical communities, by society at large, and don't seem to be all that big a deal for the church even. What kinds of things are we liable to be sucked in by? One of the ones, and I'm going to mention it first, because after I talk about it this morning, I'm going to put it to rest for a while. I've ridden this horse <laughs> To the end, just about, and that is uh, the evolutionary ideologies, which is not science; it, it is a philosophy of origins that um, people scurry around looking for data to support. Just as Christians and other uh, faith-based entities scurry around looking for data, the truth is. There's nothing about origins that can be scientific, because you can't see it. You can't test it. You can't observe it. It's not science. It's something else. And the Bible has a specific way of speaking about how this whole universe and this world and we came to be. And yet, if you today are critical of what is coming in the church to be theistic evolution, you're basically considered an idiot. More and more prevalent studies have, have shown that in our schools, when I say our schools, I'm talking about Christian colleges, universities, and seminaries across the nation, more and more are accepting the concepts of theistic evolution. And with that, there is a push to, to get the pastors on board. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's two ways, I guess, to, to change the whole culture of a church. One way is to get everybody to buy into an idea. Uh, that doesn't always work because there's always stick in the muds, sticks in the mud like me who won't change. And then the other way is just, just to die off and raise up a whole new generation of people who think differently. That seems to be the tact that's currently being taken. But it's kind of um, epitomized by the declaration of Bruce Waltke, who uh, was a uh, well-known evangelical, he is a well-known scholar, was an evangelical, I can't put him in that camp currently, uh, 
But Bruce Waltke made this statement. In essence, and I summarize, he said, unless the church accepts going to a cult to the intelligent people of our world, and as a result, they will not take our claims of Christ with any seriousness. Now, that sounds noble. And he may not be far off the mark because um, people like I do and just happen to believe the Bible is literally true um, are not well accepted in the academic community. Uh, there is ridicule. It's like, well, you're kind of stupid. Uh, maybe you'll get smart one day, but chances are you won't. We're just going to ignore you. You're one of those yapping little dogs. We're just going to ignore. But the problem is, solution, as difficult as that is, the problem is that the philosophy undermines play with the words. You have to bend the Scripture. And the day that you the day that you discover a mistake in the Bible you have taken it upon yourself to find all the other mistakes in the Bible. There's actually a shift that goes on from trusting God in His revelation to becoming God in rationalism as a way to truth. I can figure this out. Let's see. That verse in Genesis 1 is not true, but John 3.16 is true. And I bring John 3.16 up because Jesus put it this way to Nicodemus. If I tell you of earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? There's an error in normal phenomena and history and things that we might have the opportunity to... How can we possibly trust it to tell us about things we cannot see and have no way of examining? And the interesting word today is, well, the Bible is not expected to be inerrant with respect to history and, and science and creation and all of that stuff, because though God, could, God was limited, interesting concept, God was limited by the of that day, and, and he, he could only tell them what they could understand, which is kind of nonsense, because the Scripture internally denies that. It says those Old Testament saints wrote about nation. they had no way of contextualizing in terms of how it was all going to work out, but they faithfully wrote it down. But aside, God was limited in His ability to, to, to tell them about those kinds of things, but He is able to preserve the salvation story of error. Really? How did he do that? If he can't keep the biblical writers from making mistakes in other places, how, how does he keep them from making mistakes 
in the salvation story. How can we trust anything the Scripture says? This is the problem. That once the Scripture is undermined, you get to be the judge and of what is true and what is false. And as soon as that happens, you're on your own. That kind of sounds like the temptation in the garden to me. If you eat this fruit, you won't need God. You can figure it out for yourself. The Scripture purports to be the Word of God. It does not give me the opportunity to determine that for myself. It makes a declaration, which I accept by faith from a God who cannot lie. And I rest on that. And if you go any other place, you have put God out of your world and you are back to your own brain trying to figure it out for yourself. And that is not a good place to be. And it's not just history and creation that suddenly comes into the mix of evaluation. It's... Uh, well, I don't like what the Bible says. I don't like what the Bible says about homosexuality. I don't like what the Bible seems to say or not say about sanctity of life. Uh, I think the twelve-step program is and all of a sudden evaluating and shifting and turning and changing and whatever we feel like doing, we can find a way to justify that. We're actually back in the dark. Second, well, it has its roots in the devil himself, oddly enough, is a moralistic guideline for achieving good behavior. In other words, what we need is rules. If we just had the right rules, we could stay on track. We can have... For morality, we can have rules for Christian growth. We can have rules for how to lose weight. We can have all kinds of rules. But at the end, that approach to spiritual development is destined to... Because with the proliferation of rules comes legalism. And legalism always leads us away from God. And sadly enough, besides that, it doesn't help our problem. And Paul makes that quite plain. And most religion, in one way or another, is about formulas and regulations and principles and guidelines and rules. And ultimately, they will lead us far off the path. They lead to failure, and we're going to be looking at that in some detail as we go on. Holistic and mental health modalities that fail to recognize the real problem or the real cure. This gets really tricky because it requires kind of a careful examination of what's going on. For example, just like evolutionary theory, psychology is not a science. Now, let me hasten to say, 
there are some things about psychology that can be scientific. One of the things I was doing this week was I was reading various and sundry studies on meditation and alpha rhythms in the brain. And the truth is that you can hook a person up to an EEG machine and you can measure their brain state or their brainwave activity and you can see that on a, on a monitor and you can follow it and you can tell when alpha rhythms kick in. They usually start in the back region of the head and um, while all the rest of the brain is just kind of going along as little squigglies called beta, beta waves, when a person closes their eyes and begins to relax, alpha rhythms begin to show up, and they are, they're nice, about 8 to 12 hertz. They're larger. They're very clear. You can see them. I've done hundreds of EEGs, and I can tell you just exactly how the pattern evolves. So if you want to study meditation, you can hook the brain up. You can put electrodes on. You can put a person on an EEG machine, and you can have them meditate, and you can trace the development of alpha waves or the emergence of theta waves. That part is science. You're using an objective measuring tool to objectively evaluate what's going on physiologically in the body. But once you've done that, you still don't know why it happens, and you still don't know what it means, and you really don't know what it does. And furthermore, I'm not sure there's a way to ever get to the bottom of that. Theories have been in transition since 1930 when uh, the fellow discovered alpha waves. Theories have been in transition over where they come from. And even today, no one really has a clear idea of where they emanate what part of the brain, how they develop. Nor do we know what they mean. But I did find one interesting study, and I'll tell you more about this as we look at Eastern mysticism and meditative practices down the road. But one of the interesting things that I found I thought was kind of humorous, it was actually a scientific study where they hooked people up. They uh, uh, allowed them to induce alpha activity in their brain. And then they wanted to see how that affected concentration. And so they would measure responses to simple tasks that were assigned. I don't know how they did this. Uh, honestly, I, I haven't read the, the studies behind it, so I, I don't know how they did this. Do not quote me as saying this is what was done. <clears throat> but if I were going to do this, this is what I would do. I would give per, a, a person a trigger in both hands with a button on it. And I would give them simple questions that, that had either an A answer, a B answer, or no answer. So that I could just simply ask a question like, 2 plus 2 equals 3 or 6. 3 or 6. Take your pick. Or none. And then I would let them go into alpha state, and I would pose the questions. So anyway, they did something like that. They did a study of... What happens to people's judgment when they're in an alpha state? And that's when they start making mistakes. There was a 20% increase in making errors. 
when people were in an alpha state. I thought that was just a little interesting since meditation that induces alpha rhythms is supposed to be beneficial. Just don't make any decisions while you're doing it because you could be in serious trouble. Well, anyway, my point in all of that is psychology has some scientific aspects to it when the experiments are done in controlled settings with observation, recording, repeatability, and evaluation. But the part that isn't scientific is almost like the origin of the universe. No one can tell you how the universe started unless they happen to have been there when it started. And the only person I know that was there that can tell the story truthfully is God. So I'm inclined to believe him. No one can tell you why you do the things you do. No matter what the theories are, no matter how prevalent they are, no matter how widely accepted. No one can tell you why you do what you do. Because there is no possible way on the planet to measure every human being from birth to the first presentation of their problem and determine all the foods they ate and all the ways their body reacted to it and all the influence of their environment and all the influence of their genes and how they responded to all the various stimuli in their life and the way they processed those thoughts, no one knows that. No one can ever discover that. Anything we might say about a person's background or history or upbringing or environment or genetic structure, anything we might say is purely conjecture when it comes to explaining present behavior. And that is widely attested in identical twins whom you would think would do the same thing. Same environment, same genes, grew up together, assuming they did grow up together. Interesting studies are done when they're separated at birth, but grew up together. And they don't act the same. And they don't react the same. And some of them develop terrible addictive patterns, while others of them seem to do just fine from the same genetic foundation. And the truth is, there's no way to understand why you do what you do. There's only one person I know in the universe that knows. His name is Jesus. And He's the only one that can unravel it for you and bring healing. He's the only one that can fix you. And then there's existential spirituality, which is experience-based rather than doctrine-based. And one of the things that I encountered as I was kind of getting into this study is trying to walk the middle line between truth and error it is really challenging. Because there are P 
people who are clearly on the wrong side, from my way of thinking, they're clearly on the wrong side. They're some of these things I've mentioned to you. And then you go and read the other people who are pointing out their errors, and they've fallen off on the other side. I read an article of one person who said, we know that stuff's evil because it's alternative medicine. Duh! If it's alternative, that means it has no scientific basis and we shouldn't believe it anyway. That's a dumb statement to make. There's no, first of all, there's nothing that says our medicine is scientific. That's the first problem. And there's nothing that says, quote, alternative medicine is not scientific. That's just a stupid statement. And so you have one side throwing rocks at the other side, and they're both wrong. But the issue lies when we are trying to develop our, our value belief structure on the basis of experience. Well, I know this has to be true because this is what happened to me. Rather than doctrine which is the objective standard, the objective standard of truth that is, as Paul says in this passage, found in Jesus Christ. And there is a movement afoot in the church today that wants to focus on experience. Let's just experience spirituality without evaluating the source of it or the truthfulness of it. And your experiences will deceive you. Your emotions will deceive you. Even your visions will deceive you. I had someone come in. It's interesting that they came in today. um, And and I'm going to tell you the story because I want you to be praying for me tonight. After Awana, this fellow is supposed to be back and supposed to meet with me. And by the way, if any of you wise people would like to meet with me, with him, I would appreciate it. But... He's going to come back, and he wants to tell me about the the marvelous and dramatic appearances of Christ that have been manifesting in various cities around the country, and the messages that Jesus is giving, and the proof and the validation that Jesus is showing up and giving messages. Now, I'm already skeptical. It's not impossible, but I'm skeptical. And then he says, out in Kansas, now I'm really skeptical. Some of you know why. We saw a great manifestation of God and we got all the churches together. We got the, 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 the evangelicals, the Protestants, we got the Catholics, we got the Seventh-day Adventists, and we got the Mormons. And we got them all together and we were seeing great experiences of God together. And we were using some, some uh, technology that you've heard of, mind detects technology, where you can control a computer with your brain. Well, we're learning how to read spiritual signals coming in, and we can tell when Jesus is talking to us. Now, this gentleman is proclaiming doctrines of demons. I don't need to know any more than I already know to make that determination. Do you know why? 
Any of you, can any of you just give me one word that puts the lie to his whole story? Now, I'm not saying he's lying. I'm saying his experience is false. Let me give you a hint. What groups did he say came together? Ah, yes, Mormons. Are Mormons Christians? No. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Their whole system of doctrine is out of this world, literally. I mean, it's demonic. It's ridiculous. The minute you tell me that you sat down with a Mormon and you had a simultaneous and identical spiritual experience, I know you were experiencing a demon. I know that. Or you were both having the same hallucination, which is less likely. Because Mormons deny Jesus Christ. And no spirit, speaking by the Spirit of God, denies Jesus Christ. He is eternal God, creator of the universe, manifest in human flesh, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and bodily raised again, and is eternal God Almighty in the heavens, someday coming back for us and will reign with him. And this is not a political statement, it's just an observation, because let me tell you, friends, the next great push is going to come this year to the evangelical church. The Christian right, politically speaking, is going to want us to believe. Not everyone, but there will be a push in this direction. They're going to want us to believe that Mormons is just another branch of Christianity. And we've got we to gotta all be buddies. Okay? I love Mormons as much as I love any other human being. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. They are not Christians. They do not have the gospel. They have a doctrine of demons. And that is a heresy. And anyone who tells me that they're in league with this kind of a kind of homogeneous group has already told me everything I need to know about their spirituality. Whatever they're experiencing... Did we just lose it? Whatever uh, they're experiencing is not of God. You see, this is not rocket science. There is a litmus test that we can apply. And so Paul says in verses 3, 6, and 9 and 10, if you look with me real quickly, because I'm about out of town, uh, out of time, maybe out of town too, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And verses 9 and 10, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete. Paul makes it very clear. And, and look at the, the words he uses. <clears throat> you know, they... They tell you in, in uh, relationship counseling, marriage counseling, whatever, uh, how to have a good conversation, how to have a good argument. 
And, and among the, the rules for a good argument are never say you always or you never or every time because you can always put the lie to that most of the time. That one went by, didn't it? <laughs> you know, you want to be careful about making these grand, all-inclusive, definitive, every single time this happens. Because there are bound to be exceptions. Not with the Apostle Paul and not with Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You need wisdom, you need knowledge, Jesus has it. That's the bottom line. You need wisdom, you need knowledge, it's in Jesus. He has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have received Christ, Jesus the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about that is that's the only time in the New Testament that that particular arrangement of those three names or titles occurs in that order. And what Paul is saying is, just as you have received the Christ, Jesus the Lord, He's emphasizing the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. He is the uh, incarnate God promised throughout all the, the Old Testament who has come to be Savior, Redeemer. He is also Lord and Creator and Master of everything there is, including your own life. So He is the Christ, Jesus, the man who is the Lord. It's about as clear as you can make it. He is the focal point of our lives. And then he says in verses 9 and 10, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All of God resides in Jesus Christ because He is God. And he says, In Him we have been made complete. What's missing? What needs to be added? <laughs> these, are, these are broad, exclusive terms. All, everything, complete in Jesus Christ. He is the sum of all things spiritual. He is the source of all of life. He is the one who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need to know about living your life successfully is found in Jesus and Paul is very straightforward about that. And we need to be very discerning and wise about the kinds of things facing us. And so Paul says, and I conclude with verse 7, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Notice that all of these are passive in sense. Having been established, having been firmly rooted, now being built up. In other words, this is action done to us. God is the one who has rooted us in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is building us up in Jesus Christ. He is the one who will establish us in Jesus Christ. As we look to Him, He does this work in our lives that is transformational. And Paul makes it clear that his desire for them 
is that on the foundation that has been laid, the, the roots that they have been given through the gospel message, that they would be built up layer upon layer, brick upon brick, as it were, in their lives, built up in Jesus, so that they are firmly established. As one commentator put it, the book of Colossians is not an antibiotic given to people who are already infected. It is a vaccination given to a church that lives in the presence of a risk of disease. You get inoculated so you won't get sick. You get an antibiotic once you've already gotten sick. The church at Colossae was holding on to truth, but they were living in an environment of errors and deception. And Paul is writing to them. He says, you've been rooted. You're being built up. I'm confident of what God is doing in your life, but I want you to be aware. And I say to you this morning, I want to inoculate you, if you'll let me. (laughs) I want to vaccinate you. I want you to be prepared. I want you to see what's going on out there. I want you to to keep firm in Jesus Christ and the grounding and rooting that you have in Him and grow up in Him so that you will not, as Paul says in his twin letter to the Ephesians, so that you will not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, and by the trickery of men. But being rooted and grounded in Christ, you may grow up in Him unto a mature person, solid and stable and immovable upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, holding to the truth and avoiding the lies that fill our culture and our world. Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank You for the power that you have in our lives. We pray that we would be those who hold fast to Him and in so doing to the truth that is in the Gospel message, Christ Jesus the Lord. Father, keep us steadfast, immovable and unshakable that we might be clear witnesses of Jesus Christ, I pray in His precious name. Amen.